since spirituality in general, and magic in particular, have something to do with the human consciousness, the question of what spiritual activity means must be answered, first and foremost, in the context of consciousness. Cultural iterations and forms are secondary, and we won't deal with them here. Instead, taking the processual nature of consciousness into account, we want to ask, what can we do with a self-reflective consciousness? That is a consciousness which is not only entangled in representation of sensory data, but creates a form of self-awareness of psychological content and the volition to manipulate it. So what can we do with such a self-reflective consciousness as soon as it appears and emerges in human history and makes us, if not from a genetic, but from a mimetic aspect, humans as such? Again, we don't ask what consciousness is, but rather what kind of perspectives it enables us to take and what actions and processes it enables us to participate in as soon as it appears. This little shift in posing the question will lead to tremendous consequences. In framing this question this way, we will pretend for a moment that there was a specific moment in time when proto-humans became self-aware. But the question whether that happened over a specific period of time or in a momentous leap isn't really that important if we just acknowledge the fact that there was an emergence in self-aware consciousness. And this emergent property out of the proto-mind or proto-psyche had not only solved specific evolutionary problems at that time, but rendered the human mind capable of doing new things and created thereby a whole set of new problems. There is, in other words, an evolutionary surplus that comes with human consciousness. We don't want to bother here with the question why that is, but instead question what this surplus enables us to do. If we would observe this emerging self-aware consciousness as an all-knowing observer and ask which actions and perspectives go along with this emergence, we can recognize the general straightforwardness of the matter at hand. To phrase the question differently, which evolutionary features and possibilities spring into life with emerging self-awareness? And to be more concrete, what kind of anthropotechnique emerged with the development of consciousness on the most broadest level of analysis? Again, anthropotechnique is a term used by German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk by which he described certain ways of acting which are autopoetic in nature. Now, we can surmise that following the postmodern paradigm, that the numbers of possible interpretation of psychological content might be infinite. Nevertheless, the number of possible applications of consciousness itself is relatively small. So again, what can we do with consciousness as soon as it appears historically? As we will see, with the emergence of consciousness, four different arrays of behavior and cognition appear. To start with, world and self become internally negotiable. Whoever possesses a self-reflective and self-aware consciousness is able to create internal representations of the experience of self and world.
as abstract or rudimentary as these representations might be. Consciousness is not only about the subjective representation of sensory input, but allows for the voluntary interpretation of these inputs and representations. We can, for example, envision a future, reinterpret past events or imagine a pink elephant. Even in its most rudimentary form, this new and emerging array or sphere of action will be a form of art. And this appearance of the domain of art and the artistic behavior must emerge as soon as self-aware consciousness appears. As soon as there is a conscious awareness of and, and about self and world, the requirements for a domain of actions are given, a domain which we can call the anthropotechnology of artistic expression. The earliest cave paintings we know of date back over 60,000 years, and although their purpose is not known, they clearly indicate self-awareness, since one of the earliest paintings in the cave of Pitakere features stencils of the human hand, which could be intuitively taken, interpreted as an artistic representation of self-awareness itself. With emerging self-awareness, art emerged. Art always consists in the representation and distortion of that which has been perceived. And what use could a consciousness possess if not the ability to create art? We want to understand art and the artistic expression as the first and most fundamental anthropotechnology appearing as soon as conscious self-awareness emerged, and not before. Simultaneously, the second basic anthropotechnology appears if and when self-aware consciousness enables the individual to voluntarily manipulate parts of the world and the surrounding environment. To this end, Humans realize their potential that they actually can manipulate the world according to their intentions and will. Without a self-reflective consciousness that distinguishes itself from the world, there would be no way of realizing what can be done. And without that, there would be no manipulation of the surrounding world, no tool-making, no domestication of fire, no building of shelter and houses, and much later, no invention of the printing press or the iPhone. Such a consciousness will not only become increasingly aware of the range of its sphere of influence, as well as the possible manipulations of its surroundings and its elements. That means, apart from art being a distinct sphere of action, another and a completely different sphere of action or anthropotechnology emerges which we could call the technical sphere of action, be it in forms of hunting or building or plowing or engineering. And as a result of that striving, later in the natural sciences, medicine, architecture, physics, and so on. They all develop through the voluntary interaction of the individual with the world. It is for that very reason that a scientific theory gains, as we know by now, its legitimation through its possible uses and applications. A theory without any applications is useless. Now, of course, one could argue that for the development of new tools and theories, some form of creativity is necessary. 
and certainly there is a reciprocity between these different spheres or arrays of action. But that does not change the fact that the whole domain of the manipulation of the environment is completely different than the general interpretation or manipulation of the internal representation of the world. Technology and art are two entirely different forms or spheres of action. As soon as there is a self-reflective consciousness, it begins to represent and to deal with its own relation to others, which could be itself. This meta-domain of action, which has elevated itself beyond the purely instinctual, experiences a reciprocal interrelatedness of self versus others who have the same experience. Only by that measure, through a socially coordinated and reciprocal domain of action, can language develop. That means a third sphere or domain of action emerges as man interacts with others who could be him. He or she must assume that the other has the same self-aware interiority as he has, all the while being able to observe the others from outside only. Communication begins as one projects the fact of its own awareness into that vessel which is the body of the other thereby creating an area of interconnectedness which allows for the survival and organization of a group. This third sphere of action, which we can call the ethical sphere of action or anthropotechnique, appears as an essential domain of the human experience, at first without name and solely as a way to transform the complexity of the interiority into functional sociability and later differentiates itself into the concrete forms of politics and morals, laws and justice, education, economics and so on. That is to say, domains which regulate social interactions. This is a purely human domain and experience and had to emerge in its earliest forms with the emergence of a self-reflective consciousness. And finally, with the emergence of self-reflective consciousness, there simultaneously appears a fourth domain of action. Namely, consciousness begins to bring into question the fact of its own existence, as well as the conditions of its own occurrence. It's a complete and voluntary turn inwards, necessarily exposing all other three basic anthropotechniques as cognitive modes of being. This turn inward constitutes a completely different sphere of action, different from the artistic, technical and ethical ones. At first, it is a cautious look inside, a first look of consciousness at itself, which tries to ponder the wonder of its own existence. With this turn inward, consciousness had to become aware of its opposite, that is, its finitude. This inward turn constitutes another distinct sphere of action with a specific purpose, at first only implicitly, up until later generations created clearer conceptions and concepts. But we have to ask, what purpose do the ancient burying rituals and sites serve if they aren't reminders of the strangeness of the conscious experience and the possibility and necessity of future non-being? Such a fourth sphere of action could be called das Geistige, for which there really is no proper English translation.
It's a term which doesn't have an inherent connection to spirituality per se, but which is a complex term referring to the entirety of the conscious experience. It's a term that denotes the later differentiation into psychology and mysticism and philosophy. As already implied, spirituality as such had to develop within this very sphere of action. Without Geist, without Psyche, without self-reflective consciousness, there would be no spirituality. But all of these forms which have developed over the last few centuries are only a blink of an eye in regard of the history of the evolution of consciousness, which began to understand itself first via stories of life, death and rebirth, of ghosts and gods, later of subconscious mind and it and superego and the levels and stages of the developing mind. Our starting point is that the emerging and reflexive consciousness had four evolutionary new functions, technology, ethics, geist and art, that is, to voluntarily change parts of the world and our surroundings, to orient the individual within a social as well as within a purely psychological context, and to express the newfound abilities in a quasi-artistic fashion, or, in other words, Consciousness is only able to relate itself to the world, to others, as well as to itself, and expresses these relationships artistically. These actual spheres of action are only a few while at the same time bringing forth the infinite complexity of human life and experience. Consciousness differentiated itself through the act of observation within these four domains, and by doing so, differentiated these spheres into numerous fields of interest. The evolution of culture and psyche, as so many thinkers have argued and shown, are linked with each other. Now, whatever magic is, whatever brand or system there is out there, magic is, in a Sloterdijkian sense, a practice system, a system that provides a methodology that enables the practitioner to differentiate and to drift as a system while steering the psyche itself. It is a practice system pertaining to the sphere of Geist, a system that enables us to do certain things if we adhere to its rules. But what is magic? Let's first have a look at Crowley's famous definition of magic as the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will. The problem, of course, with that definition is that it is so broad that it can entail every act of man done intentionally. That defeats the purpose of being a definition. Maybe that was Crowley's point, arguing that magic is for everybody. But when magic actually entails everything, then why use the term at all? Maybe there is some metaphysical truth to it that literally every volitional act is an act of magic. But even if that's the case, we should not bother with this. We need a vertical tension. Therefore, I think Crowley's definition lacked a crucial component, and that is novelty. If we encounter a new situation, let's say the first weeks at the university, we experience chaos and uncertainty. But our will, paired with the social structures in place, bring this chaos into form very rapidly. From the individual's viewpoint, 
This is indeed an act of magic, the transformation of the self and world through a year-long process through which the self and world are completely transformed in the end. No student knows how exactly self and world will look like after his time at the university. He may have a rough idea. With the years at the university, the ideas become more concrete and clear. But the student encountered chaos. He wrestled with it. He created a new being in the world. He sacrificed all the other possibilities in life he had before going to the university in favor of a more refined idea of his future. The transformational years at the university are a perfect example of a secularized ritual of magic. And indeed, as it has been said numerous times, there is a secularized form of ancient initiation and individuation rituals that supposedly makes a man and woman out of boys and girls, that is a functional member of a society. And you can see not only the volitional aspect that transforms self and world, but also the aspect of novelty. As we mentioned, the ritual always integrates the battle with chaos and the sacrifice. That is the sacrifice of the old and the elicitation of the new. It is worth noting here, and we will come back to that, that the transformation of self and lived-in worlds always happens simultaneously. As we gradually shift and undergo the individuation, we differentiate and drift as a system. In this sense, and that's very important, future self and future world are not really distinct from each other. Systems drift, by the way, is an interesting concept out of systems theory that proposes that the older any autopoietic system gets, the more it differentiates itself from other systems. This is true of galaxies that drift apart or marital spouses that after years of marriage find that they don't have that much in common anymore. That is, and that's the point here, the rule and not the exception. There is, of course, a difference between university as a long-form modern ritual and magic per se. The transformation through university is a case of application of certain mechanisms that can be found in magic. But they are sort of low res and low intensity. Also, they don't really concern themselves with higher spiritual endeavors in favor of a secularized form of, well, enlightenment. Surely a crucial one, but nonetheless only one step in the transformations that are possible for the human mind. Indeed, we can propose different stages of magic, pre-egoic, egoic and post-egoic. And the university is a classic example of a modernistic, egoic magic. But taking the university experience as a blueprint, we can get a picture of what magic could be about. It is about the employment of will to bring forth transformation, to give our world and ourselves a bend. Novelty is key here, plain repetitive behavior, which most of our days consists of, is not magic. Magic always integrates the mythological fight of St. George with the chaos dragon. Magic is a cult in the sense that that which is not known is integrated. So what is magic? Instead of creating a definition, which seems somewhat counterproductive, let's have a more general look at its aspects. First, magic entails the use of psychotechniques to elicit certain predetermined futures, that is, future selves and future worlds. Second, 
Magic is an initiatory system that steers development towards post-egoic structures. Third, magic implies and works only by increasing self-efficacy by way of the diamond. And fourth, there are stages of magic that work in an autopoetic manner towards the elicitation of the next stage of magic and the next general worldview. So let's unpack that. First, magic entails the use of psychotechniques to elicit certain predetermined futures, that is, future self and future worlds. Our consciousness, as we have seen, is designed in a way to bring forth ethics, technology, art, and the shamanic or proto-religious experience of Geist. Magic is based on the shamanic experience and borrows its methodology from. But apart from that, what do we mean by saying that magic entails the use of certain psychotechniques to elicit certain predetermined futures? We tend to conceptually separate ourselves from the world as if we are self-contained units and actors in the world. But we can only imagine a future that is distinct from the present if our notion of self has also somewhat shifted. The lived-in worlds we are inhabiting are created by our distinctions and actions. And from this point of view, future world and future self are one. You can't think about your future world your lived-in worlds of the future, with not simultaneously think about the things you do in the future world that indicates your future self. The very basic idea of Piaget and the developmental stages of young humans indicate that with ongoing cognitive development, the self as well as the perceived world become more complex. This interdependency of world and self lies at the very foundation of developmental psychology. Because we are always stuck in the present, we allow ourselves the luxury to conceptually separate us from the world and are not seeing that the worlds we inhabit and our current selves are identical, since self means just particular ways of acting, constructing and experiencing the world. This luxury, of course, is just evolutionary access, a narratological superfluity that doesn't really add something substantial except the social games we play in daily life. That mirrors Eastern and Western ideas that the boundaries and distinctions we draw are merely arbitrary. Even Hegel stressed that thought and being are somewhat identical. That means, from a perspective of magic, if you want to change the world, you first have to change yourself. If we build it, that self, the future world will come that his world somehow will adapt to the new openings and possibilities of that new self. In similar fashion, but the other way around, if you bend through ritual the world, world will immediately confront the old self with the necessary obstacles that have to be solved in order for the self to adapt to the new world. Every psychological technique that confronts the unstructured space of the future will work in one of these two ways. There is a secret bond between future self and future world, which every true magic draws upon. Second, magic is an initiatory system that stirs development towards post-egoic structures. Following the argument above, it seems obvious that magic as an initiatory system 
reveals his occult or secret relationship between future self and future world. To exploit that principle, one has to, by definition, go beyond of the notion of the self-contained individual unit or ego to embody this understanding. Since it is the ego that separates itself from the world, the practitioner has to become post-egoic in order to intentionally bend future self or future world. But there is another dimension to it. Every descriptive initiatory system, be it the occult grades and self in Western Hermeticism, be it the various developmental stage theories, they all really consist of a two-path progression. In Ken Wilber's and Claire Graves' words, the move from Tier 1, stages of consciousness, to Tier 2, and the gradual transformation from Tier 2 to Tier 3. So why is it important, since highlighting these two steps out of a multitude of developmental stages seems somewhat arbitrary? It is exactly because of the important fact that the movement to Tier 2 signifies discarding the superficial behaviors and worldviews in favor of a whole system view. And that does not only mean an integration of previous stages, but also a becoming increasingly authentic and self-authoring, which of course signifies the ability to recognize and embody the true self, the daimon self, yes, to enact the archetypes. Because of this reason, Western Hermeticism and Kabbalah depicts this stage of development as the sun in the center of the tree of knowledge, which is an integral stage called Tiferet. The second move towards tier three stage of consciousness signals an even more profound movement, which is the intentional dissolution of the deep self within the greater unknown by whatever name or reference model you choose to name it, non-duality, Brahman, void, nuit. The only way possible by which to achieve this is through the gifts of the diamond himself, because he carries the tools to break down the boundaries of limitation, exactly by means of flow and trance, which means knowing and enacting, embodying your primary archetype, as a necessity for the one who wants to achieve some sort of enlightenment. The consequence thereof is that magic implies and works only by increasing self-efficacy by way of the diamond. Magic famously doesn't work when the ego is involved. We now know why that is. If you want to change something, you have to change yourself. Every autopoetic system even or especially if it's the ego, strive towards self-preservation and self-extension. So changing oneself runs naturally counter to the system's drive of the ego. That's why it is so tremendously difficult to actually change a behavior. Of course, we can point out there are lesser rituals that doesn't really involve the daemon, but the efficacy is limited and the results questionable at best. Last but not least, we can surmise there are stages of magic that work in an autopoetic manner towards the elicitation of the next stage of magic and general worldview. 
we already looked at the modern education system and particularly the university as an instantiated form of a secular ritual. But we can also add the Western Hermeticism of the emerging 20th century, especially in Britain, as forms of a more postmodern approach to magic. Here, basically at the same time as psychology and the postmodern thinking emerged, we see a magic that is already deeply fused with psychological concept that was lacking in the insights in the works of Eliphas Levy or John Dee centuries before. In these latter examples, we can see a more pre-modern approach to magic in the alchemical ways in the Keys of Salomon, the workings in the books of John Dee and others. And then, of course, we find the very early forms of magic, the shamanistic rituals for hunt healing and safety of the tribe. The point to be made here is that magic as a training system goes through iterations to refine itself with practices that probably emerged in early spiritual religious forms as a way, as we have seen, to deal with the constructive aspect of the interdependency of self and world. And the final argument is that in order to bring forth a new general worldview, as in modernity or postmodernity, society has to differentiate in novel ways the four basic domains of consciousness, art, technology, ethics and geist, simply because every stage of human and cultural development is defined by its new forms of art, technology, ethics and geist. In other words, culture has to come up with new rituals and ways to deal with the future, and that's the prerogative and legacy of magic. Every ritual consists of certain elements. First, intensity has to be unlocked, as well as through meditation or tantric forms of meditation, or through the embodiment of the daemon. Intensity only comes from internal coherence and integrity, and without intensity neither self nor world can be bent. Second, we find the role of sound or symbol as exemplified through the works of Eric Gans in the creation of the sacred. That is, we need a sound or symbol that represents our most valued future. Last but not least, we have to use concentration to eradicate the egoic boundaries between self, world, symbol and future and sacrifice everything that not pertains to the most valued future that we chose.